This is an ABC podcast. The 1965 AP6 Valiant. Not very many of them out there. Closest thing we've got to a family heirloom and a beautiful built old steel car and, you know, it's one of the few things in my family. Like, we don't have a lot of treasures. It was so innocuous. You know, we were just doing something we normally do, just driving up the main road of our neighbourhood and uh, I unfortunately was turning right and I I pulled out in front of a motorcycle and didn't even know what would happen until the, the bang kind of sat there on the curb and just thinking what the hell have I done and the guilt was just washing over me and um, my dad who was a tough old man and uh, not for a second was I worried he was going to be angry at me but I was just so disappointed in myself. And then he gets out of the car, comes up to me and my brother. First thing he asks, walking past the wreckage, are you boys okay? Which still quite sweet when I think about it now in hindsight. It's still a guilt that I'd never really get. I don't think I'll ever lose. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Craig Quartermain was behind the wheel that day responsible for reducing the family's valiant to a crumpled mess of steel and rubber. The car? It's his dad's pride and joy. But it's not just the guilt that Craig has to deal with after the accident. It's the cost of repairing the valiant to its former glory. Today on the show, Tom Wright brings us the story of Craig's quest to find a lucrative gig to pay off that debt. And he starts by looking to his dad for inspiration. Growing up, we moved around a lot because dad worked in the mines, but I never really knew what he did. He never once tried to encourage us to go into the mines. It's a hard job. The machinery was hard on the body. He walks around like a half-open pocket knife. I don't think my dad ever wanted any of us to go into that industry, but no, dad never wanted it for us. But Craig, he needs that cash, and so his dad organises an interview with a mining company. I essentially went to a head office in South Perth. Uh, I did an induction, which took about three days. I filled out so many forms that it actually altered my signature. And then it's time for Craig to fly off and start a new sort of life, far away from everything he knows and everything he's grown up with. You land in this uh, real beautiful desert part of the world. It's still really early in the morning. The sun has just come up over the horizon. It's a mixture of red and shadow and dust, and you step off the plane. And uh, it looks like nothing at first, just emptiness. The pits themselves, when you get there... I don't think I understood what humans were capable of until I saw how big some of these pits were. Open-cut mining, which is basically mark out how big you want the pit to be at the very top, so the level that we're on now, and they mark out essentially the size of a suburb and blow that up and dig that up. And then once you get all the resources that you need or follow the vein of whatever it is you're digging, you would go down another 30 metres. 
the first site I ever worked on was quite well established. It had already been around for about 10 years. Showing your donger, which is your room, which had very little in it. One room with a bed and a cupboard. And the bathroom was shared. Showers and all that sort of stuff was in another demountable. So it was a mixture of demountable rooms that look like what you would expect on a tropical island these days. Actually really well set up with weaving paths and trees that were actually well established. Looked kind of pretty, resortish almost, in the middle of a desert. The irony of uh, wiping out all this beautiful landscape to put in their camp and then trying to make it look pretty again, that's not lost on me. The mine is crowded with people. It's a hive of activity at all hours of the day and night. But Craig, the new guy, finds it to be a pretty lonely place too. Nobody really reaches out to you and keeps an eye out for you when you're brand new. There was such a mix of random people. There were... It felt like it was a collection of a lot of people on the run from the real world, sometimes. And then just working class dudes. There are four basic sorts of work on the mines. First up, you have the bulldozer operators... Usually blokey blokes who like to work out in their spare time. Then there are the truck drivers. Truck drivers are probably closer to the characters in Wally. You know, the round pudgy people. They were, <laughs> they were just the ones that cruised. Uh, boneheads, they would be called. The truck drivers, because they apparently had the easiest job. Next, the digger operators. And then you would have the uh, digger operators who had these delusions of grandeur, like they were some sort of uh, top gun. Finally, there's the explosives crew, which is where Craig finds himself during his first posting. The first day you work on the bomb crew, they kind of seduce you. They take you up to the top of the pit to set off the shot. And uh, it's usually around about dusk, so it's kind of dark, and you get to see lightning, zip, like the flash zipping across the ground. You set off this, it looks like a pedal with a gunshot cap in it. And you stomp it, and that shoots this spark down the line all the way to the shot, and it just zigzags all over the ground and blows up. It's really cool. Uh, it's entrancing, and you can become a little bit ambivalent about how dangerous these things are. But I was on a shot when a box full of uh, these boosters were run over by a small loader. Can't even explain. Saying your life flash before your eyes is really odd, but you do all of these calculations. I don't recall breathing. Upon reflection, if I sit down and really think about it, yeah, it can mess with you a little bit to think now as a 40-year-old man. Damn, I was lucky. There was a few close calls. But when you have so many close calls, you just kind of mow over it. It's, And it's not healthy. I'm not saying this is the right way to deal with it. But, uh, yeah, you couldn't probably muster up the energy to be worried. Surrounded by all this danger day in, day out, Craig has to find a way to blow off some steam, and the mine site offers more than a few options. You would get to shift change. You'd get 24 hours by yourself out on site, and you would just hit it hard with your two or three mates. Like, we went and swam in old pits that would fill up with water. <laughs> I'm still not totally sure if that was legal. There were people that loved their uh, their marijuana. Uh, a lot of people would uh, grow. There were some people that grew <laughs> weed out on site and smoked it and kept it hidden. 
Amphetamines as well, they were pretty prevalent because they would be out of your system in 24 hours. Because, uh, yeah, a month is a long time. There are a lot of people that would uh, do some pretty crazy stuff to get themselves stimulated. Alcohol, though, still the biggest thing. The start of the mining boom, where drinking restrictions came in. Because back in the day, you could just drink to your heart's content. As long as you didn't wreck anything or cause any accidents, then no one really cared. But unfortunately, people would. I got to a point where I would drink four stubbies of beer on an empty stomach really fast just to get drunk. But life down the mines, strange at first, soon becomes its own kind of familiar. Helped along by the healthy paycheck Craig collects each fortnight. After just two months, he's paid off the extensive repairs on the Valiant. And it's very easy to forget that the crashed car was the reason he was here at all. Once that first paycheck comes in, it didn't take long for me to get used to that routine. Very quickly forgot about, you know, why I got into it. I mean, we paid off the Valiant, got that fixed, and the mission was complete. I was able to buy a house when I was 23. By that, I mean a little unit in a piece of shit suburb in Perth, which for my family is probably a big deal. Got the keys on my 24th birthday. This is fun. This is kind of my life. I don't have any responsibilities. No responsibilities and plenty of cash. Turns out this does quite a bit for Craig's reputation back home. Flyout day is the greatest day ever. You are cashed up. You are excited. Come back to Perth. Everyone's happy to see me. One thing was kind of handy was all my mates were in university at the time and so I was a god when I came back because I had cash and plus I didn't have anything that I missed in Perth I was having adventures all the time hired a little bar in uh, Northbridge in Perth in Western Australia and uh, the hours were set to a certain amount of time once the uh, bar was shut and they asked us to leave I just put a thousand dollars on the bar and said hey can we stay open for a bit longer and they said yes and that was fun (laughs) Except we would say that's stupid and obnoxious, but it was pretty pretty fun. Eventually, Craig stops working on the bomb crew and starts driving trucks. This is the job everyone says is easy. Drive a 100-ton truck up and down a hill all day. That seems less dangerous than the bomb crew, right? The normal dump truck I would have worked in would roughly be about the size of two apartments on top of each other. Geez, you know what? Maybe four city apartments, the more I think about it. Roughly the height of a two-storey house is where you would go up to sit down and drive this machine. And that's just the dump trucks. The excavators are just as big, if not bigger, and the buckets on some of these uh, could easily dig out a backyard swimming pool in one swipe. We used to talk about it all the time. If somebody ever got a dump truck and just decided to go for a rampage in the city, it would be horrendous because they're so unstoppable. One day, Craig is driving one of these dump trucks through the mine site, just like he's been doing all day, every day. I was driving a dump truck and the struts, so they're these massive uh, struts, hydraulic um, pumps, essentially. They push the tray up to dump off the load, so you, you get a a dump truck and the tray's all the way up. Craig's done this a thousand times. The tray of this truck is lifted all the way up 
emptying itself out when he hears an almighty bang. Well, the struts on this particular truck I was driving blew up and uh, the entire tray, which is about 20 tonne, came crashing back down onto the cab of my truck. And, uh, you, you hear the uh, phrase, you know, seeing stars, and I genuinely, truly, honestly saw stars and got to see why they use that phrase. It's pretty accurate. Um, the whiplash, the impact, the inertia. Uh, got a concussion from the pure shock of just the, the weight hitting the top of my truck, and it was so surreal to just be doing something you've done nearly 40 times in a shift, which is back up your truck, pull the the hydraulic lift, the tray comes up, the tray comes down. That's it. That's, that's your routine as a truck driver. And then from out of nowhere, this almighty crash. And then you go unconscious slightly, a bit dazed, and the thing that wakes you up is the smell of the engine oil because the window is blown out from the pressure. It was all pretty crazy. While freak accidents like this aren't as uncommon as you'd hope, the most dangerous thing Craig has to deal with every day is not explosive material or floods, but pure exhaustion. Two weeks of night shift in a machine isn't normal. Like, there's no way you should be doing that. You don't realise what tired is, and it's very much like Fight Club, you know? You're just this constant haze of not sure if you're awake or you're asleep when you do two weeks of night shift. And dangerous stuff happens. I fell asleep driving a truck up a ramp, and the only thing that woke me up was when the wheels started to climb the wall, which are cut to a certain angle so that they're safer. But it was enough for me to climb up the wall lose group and smash back down on the ground that's what woke me up going up the hill and this might sound irresponsible but when that truck crashed and woke me back up all I kind of thought was oh better not do that again that's it that's how you deal with it and uh, upon reflection very dangerous and irresponsible but you really don't know any better then one night Through the fog of exhaustion, as he drives through the darkness of yet another night shift, Craig gets a visit from his indigenous ancestor. Or at least he thinks that's who it was. That time of night, you look through a window, out into the dark, it's a mirror. But I look through this dark window out into the engine bay in the middle of the night, and I see this old black fellow looking me straight in the face, and I shit myself, and I freak out a bit. I, I, I saw a an old Aboriginal man sitting in the engine bay of my truck looking at me through the window one night and freaked out and had a conversation with him and uh, he told me off for destroying my grandfather's uh, ancestral home. It was a really poignant moment to be not that far from where your grandfather was born and lived and raised and to be digging it up. Culturally... The more I think about it, there is this overwhelming guilt I feel about working in that area of all places, exactly where my bunch of my grandfather came from. Uh, that, that that is that is a weight that I carry, and it did manifest, I think, when there was an old black fellow and definitely an old tribesman who 
probably wasn't there. It's really hard to get under mine sights. So I'm pretty confident he wasn't there. And I know exactly the spot where I was at. And this is some deep bush. And uh, it was significant places. And the amount of them, I mean, it's still getting done now. Significant places are being blown up and shipped out. At least now some, some of them are being caught. In my time, who knows what I dug up. And when I say that, I mean, I didn't even operate the digging machine. I was just hauling it out. But there is something about being from a culture that values the land and then becoming a part of a machine that digs it up and sends it off somewhere else. You can't really deal with that like a normal person. And maybe old uncle did manifest himself to tell me off and maybe I do deserve it. No, I definitely deserve it. Eventually... The night shifts, the exhaustion, the fly-in, fly-out, this culture of work hard, play hard, took its toll on everyone who lived it. Craig sees it happen again and again. So I grew up basically in the mines. I became an adult in the mines. I watched guys get their phone call from their partner who said they'd just emptied the bank account and they've taken the kids. I'm leaving you. These guys are getting these phone calls on two bars of reception out in the middle of nowhere. And they literally would end that phone call. I didn't know anything was wrong. Like that that sort of detachment. Then when I fell in love and got into a two-week-on, one-week-on roster, I thought, I can manage this. We're independent. We can live without each other. It turns out Craig couldn't manage it. That relationship ends soon enough, buckling under the strain just like the other marriages and partnerships all around him. While you're going through it, yeah, you don't realise you're in it. Craig, though, does eventually find someone and begins another relationship he hopes will survive this life. And then one day I get on a bus and hear this young guy almost verbatim having the same arguments that I was having. Nah, babe, it's all right. I'll be back soon. I'll call you after my shift and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, oh, dude, you sound like a... Me? This is a cycle. It's what this situation creates. And um, yeah, I fell for him. I'd like to hope that the young guy figured it out, sorted himself out, and the young girl as well. These situations are not that weird. You know, if you really like being around someone, you don't get to be around them. You resent the situation. And if that person's to blame for the situation, you blame that person. It's not that weird. Not that odd, you know, from stuff that happens in the city, but it's just so much more condensed and isolated. When you're in isolation like that, in the middle of nowhere, it becomes way more dramatic. And um, when you can't deal with your emotional issues for 13 and a half hours because you're trapped in the cab of a machine, that takes years of your life. And I had that situation a lot. So I feel like that was a huge catalyst for a lot of people tapping out, quitting, breaking down all in general and just hitting whatever they needed to do to medicate themselves whether it be trouble on their week off or alcohol or whatever his own relationship survives the mines and they get married but the monotony of the life he's leading gets harder and harder to bear and then one day after six years of driving the dump trucks he hears something a phrase uttered over and over again by a shovel operator A sort of verbal tick. After nearly six years of just driving dump trucks, and I reckon it was about hearing the 
shovel operators say the exact same joke or phrase or punchline or catchphrase that he always says every shift. But this particular time, I reckon he must have said it about 12 times during the one shift. Tell him he's dreaming. And I just thought, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to work with these people. I was getting closer to 30 and realized that I'd not going to be able to know how to do anything else if I'm not careful. And that terrified me. So I just looked to do anything. I did a bloody TAFE course in horticulture <laughs> just to find something else to do in my time off. And then I started doing community radio, uh, which was Nyungar Radio in Perth, Western Australia and Triple J, the ABC, um, started doing broadcasting scholarships and I'd still been doing community radio for about six months at that point. So it was a 50 grand pay cut, maybe a little bit more than that. And I couldn't have done it if my wife hadn't have backed me to do it. So we submitted a tape. I did the job interview and I got it. And I had the option to move to Sydney and just be start learning how to become a broadcaster. And it was uh, nine years, eight months, three weeks and four days that I left uh, from when I started in mining. And um, it went on to... And went on to a, a broadcasting and media career, which is probably going all right. It is going all right. Craig has been a presenter for Triple J, ABC TV and ABC Local Radio. And he's also a stand-up comedian. And The Valiant? The Valiant is in great condition in my parents' garage. Uh, they fell on hard times back in the day, uh, maybe 2016. 2017 and they were going to sell it and uh, I'd been saving up to go to Edinburgh and I didn't want my parents to sell it so I gave them my savings and I bought the Valiant off them so I now own the Valiant I don't want it but I own it Thanks so much for listening to Days Like These. If you've got a story that we have to hear, you can send it to us, dayslikethese at abc.net.au. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Today's episode was reported by Tom Wright on the lands of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri peoples. Sound design and engineering by Huay Nguyen. The supervising producer is Sophie Townsend. Our executive producers are Sophie Townsend and Tom Wright. See you next time. tell you since we have been touring this show my life has gotten so much worse and it really has and the most recent thing is my relationship ended spectacularly badly 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 I'm Judith Lucy and in that clip I'm referring to discovering that the man I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with We were about to move in together so we could start saving to buy a place. Had completely betrayed me. 
One afternoon before performing that very show with my hilarious buddy Denise Scott, I was sitting in my hotel room on the phone to him when he said the words, I can't keep gaslighting you. I've been stealing money out of one of your bank accounts for over two years. And the name of the tour we were doing, Disappointments, might alert you to the fact that I'd already had a few. I just look back on all these disappointments, big ones, small ones, and I think, what's the point? You know, why are we here? Oh, my God, I don't know. I I look back on the days when I used to drink until I fell over. You know, I, I smoked, I took drugs, I got stoned every day. Oh, my God, I had the most disgusting casual sex. And what I've finally come to realise is that I was really happy. I'm Judith Lucy, and I'm overwhelmed and dying. Just before turning 50, I realised that I was totally overwhelmed by the state of the world and my own life. But I also felt like time was running out. So the question is, how to make the most of the years that I have left on this planet? I know what you're thinking, and you're right. This podcast is going to be hilarious. How do you feel about dying? I've always been told from a young age that the only thing I have to do in this life is die. When I die, I want to have been the best possible person I could be. What gives your life meaning? We're running so fast forward that we've forgotten kind of to go forward. We need to go back. We're sort of gazing on something infinite from a very finite position, and I don't know how anyone can be certain on that. Are you single? Oh, uh, I am single. No, I've heard of myself. <laughs> this, well, in the sense that there's one of me. <laughs> <laughs>